This morning we continue our series in the book of Revelation, which discusses the end of everything as we know it. And everybody, whether they believe in God or not, is curious about how things will end. I believe it's because humanity knows in our soul, placed by God, that everything that is, is not the way that it should be. Things are out of sync. They're not right. And that we know things need to be made right, whether we realize that's from God or not. And so we're studying what the Bible says about how God will bring an end to all things as we know it, how he will bring justice and judgment in this world and ultimate salvation. And it's important to know those things because it gives us hope in our lives and also because it challenges us in the way that we live today. Far too many of us who have called upon the name of the Lord, who have put our our faith and trust as Jesus Christ, as our Lord and our Savior, we don't live with the end in mind. We don't live with the truths of revelation directing our steps and our focus and our energy. And so it's my prayer through the study for you and for me that we're reminded who Jesus is in his totality, that what he is coming to do, and it will change how we live our lives for his glory. Amen, church? Amen. So last week, we, we got into chapter 4, and we were entered into the throne room of God through John's vision, the Apostle John. And we saw all of creation worshiping God, and we talked about how revelation is both literal and it is symbolic. There's a lot of symbolism in there. And so we have to be very humble when we approach Revelation and understanding what God revealed to John. Now we talked about chapter 4 among all the the crazy pictures that we see there and we talked through those. So if you missed last week, I encourage you to go back and listen because I give some context and and possibilities to some of the the, the things that that John saw, like the four living creatures that had eyes all over them. That the point of all of that that was revealed was that we were made for worship. All of humanity is designed to worship something greater than themselves. It's meant to be God. But if it's not God, we're going to worship something else. We may worship our careers or our families or our beauty. When, when we're a teenager and we're in school, you know, we worship the idea uh, of ourselves and being seen as, as popular and well-liked and loved by our peers. And that when we don't worship anything, when all the things that we worship fail us and we just shut ourselves off, the, 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 the beautiful part of our humanity begins to die as we shut off our love and our emotion to things because we have given up. Because ultimately, we haven't looked to the one thing that we should be worshiping, the creator of the heavens and the earth. And so it was my prayer this week that you would be reminded as you've gone about your daily life that you've been designed to worship God. And that is when we are the most beautiful and that our life is the most beautiful. And I I continue to pray that throughout this series that truth gets embedded in your heart and in my heart in a greater way. Now for today, as we enter into chapter 5, we're still in the throne room. The judgments of God have not started yet, but they're getting ready to. And we see what triggers those judgments today. I'm going to read through Revelation chapter 5 here, and then we're going to talk about it. Chapter 5, verse 1. 
Then I, John speaking, saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with, the seven, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scrolls and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Verse 7. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and a golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you have ransomed people for God, from every tribe and every language and every people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Verse 11, And then I looked, and I heard around the throne, and the, and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and they worshiped. This is the word of the Lord. So after John is completely blown away by the scene in heaven, as, as we talked through last week, he notices something in the right hand of the one who sits on the throne, in the right hand of God. And it's a scroll that is sealed with seven seals. We don't use scrolls today. We use encrypted emails. But back then, they used scrolls. And the way that they encrypted them is they put a seal on them. And, and these seals were to ensure uh, the integrity of what was written and to communicate who was the sender, official sender of this message. And so John sees this scroll, and it doesn't have one seal, it's got seven. Now remember, in the Bible, seven means completeness, it means fullness, it means perfection, right? And so John has this scroll that comes from the highest authority in all the universe, and it is sealed, and, and, and inside these seals are the decrees of God concerning the judgments of God, which we'll see as we enter chapter 6 next week. Now, before the scroll can be opened, the angel says, hey, is there anyone worthy to open the scroll? In other words, who has the, the worthiness of character and the, the, the divine right 
to break these seals? Who has the power to defeat Satan, to wipe out, its, wipe out sin and all of its effects, to wipe out the curse of creation? But there was silence. And it says, John began to weep. It doesn't say he begins to get sad, that he begins to cry. It says he begins to weep. And I assume John wept because he wanted to see the world rid of sin and evil and death. He wanted to see Satan vanquished, God's kingdom established. He wanted to see Israel saved and and, and Christ exalted. What John knew at this point is that the, the Messiah had been executed, that he rose again, but still there was evil in the world. Jerusalem was and all of Israel was still under Roman control, being massacred, scattered. We read through the letters of Revelation, we knew the, the intense persecution that many of them faced, and how some of the other ones that weren't being persecuted were infected with sin, destroying the message of the gospel. This silence that we see, this, this weeping of John, it, it, it represents the world without the hope of Christ. It represents no answering for your suffering. It it represents no answer for your sickness, for war, for broken marriages and broken families. It represents no answer for the insecurity and the emptiness and the hurt that we feel. It represents uh, uh, no hope for our sin. It represents a heaven that would be empty and a hell that would be full. And so I think in this moment what God did is he allowed John to feel the weight of a world without Christ. A world without salvation or redemption and all the things that we just got done singing about. And I thought about this last week of all the times I heard prayer requests from people or I praying for people and I was thinking about how every time I'd pray for them or I'd think about them, I would think about all the possibilities of what God could do. I thought about my own life and my own failures, my own struggles and all the possibilities of what God could do. If it was not for Christ, I could not have any hope in any of that. There'd never be anyone to look to. John feels this weight. And it makes him weep. But in verse 5, as John was weeping, one of the elders said, Weep, weep no more. Weep no more. And we see in this passage that, that Jesus has given these three different names. The Lion of the tribe of Judah, which is a reference to a prophecy about Israel and that the the Savior would come from the tribe of Judah, which was one of the 12 tribes of Israel that you see in the Old Testament. You also see him called as the root of David. You see, the Israelites believed that uh, the Savior coming would come from the lineage of King David, right? The guy who took out Goliath. And so these names would have a lot of meaning with the Jewish people. And then there's a third image that is given where he's called the lamb, the lamb standing 
as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes. And this is a reference to Jesus as well. Remember John in 129, when he, when he sees Jesus coming, John the Baptist, he says, look, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In Revelation, this title is used for Jesus 28 times. 28 times. Now, once again, in this beautiful picture of him being a lamb and slain, Revelation gets weird, right? A lamb that has 12, seven eyes and seven horns. And I thought like last week, I would put a picture up on the screen to give you some visualization, but like every picture I found was just horrific to look at. Like if you ever like Google this, don't do this now, but they're like scary, horrific, like, like nightmare-ish pictures. This is one of those moments that we have to remember symbolism in Revelation. That these eyes and these horns, they represented the perfect power and wisdom of Christ. Along with the seven spirits, which some believe were seven angels or, or could uh, also be the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Remember seven being the number of perfect and complete. Remember in Revelation, often not the most important thing is to understand every detail, but to understand the purpose and meaning behind the details that are given. And so when Jesus comes and he takes the scroll, what does everybody do? They begin to worship. Worthy are you to take the scroll, to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you have ransomed people for God from every tribe and every language and every people and every nation. Amen. Now, you remember when God created man, he gave dominion to man. We studied this in Genesis 1 through 11. He gave dominion to man. There is yours. And then we come to Genesis 3, and, and Satan deceives man, right? And somehow, and, and we don't fully understand this because all the details are not given, but somehow when Satan deceived man, Satan took a certain level of, of control and influence and authority in this earth. And once again, don't know what it works, how it works, or what it looks like. Death was ushered in. Sin was ushered in. Satan's influence was ushered in. You see this when uh, all through there's scriptures here and there talking to this, or even with Satan, he's trying to tempt Jesus. Uh, when Jesus is in the wilderness, he says, listen, worship me and I'll give you everything. There's a certain power that he had. But praise God, from the beginning of time, God had a plan. He sent his son, who willingly came, Philippians 2. He lived a life without sin, which means what? This is important. It means he wasn't subject to death. We read in Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is what, church? Death. Death. So he did not have to die, but he chose to die anyway. And because he died with that sinless life, and we don't understand how it fully works either, he took that power back. This is why he says in Revelations 1.18, I died and behold, I'm alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. His death was not required, but it was freely given. And in so it pays for our sin. Like a man who walks into a court and pays the fines 
the fees of another man who's locked up so that they may go free. Jesus dies and pays for our sin with his blood. This is why we could sing that beautiful hymn today, Before the throne of God, I have a perfect plea. Because without Christ, when we face God before his throne, he would say guilty. And we'd be sentenced to eternity without him. But because of Christ, we come to him and we say, I plead the blood of Jesus. But not only that, the salvation isn't just for another time. It tells us in these verses that he restores us to our original position. It says that through Christ, we have become priests. You see, Christianity differs from many religions when it comes to the priesthood. You see, in many religions, they teach that a, a, a follower cannot come directly to God. They don't have direct influence or interaction with their God without the assistance of a priest. That's how they reach those distant deities. But Scripture teaches us that God, through Jesus, has given us the ability to come to him ourselves. That's why we're called priests. It doesn't mean we walk around in robes with incense and you know priestly things, right? It means that we have direct access to the Almighty, that when we get on our knees and we close our eyes and we're praying to God, we have no, no one that we need to go through. Christ has paved that way. Every time that you're in trouble, Every time you don't know what to do and, and you talk to God and, and there's no waiting period, there's no one you got to go through, you can just, wherever you are, you can go to him. That has become a Christ because of Christ. Imagine if he did not exist. Imagine all those times that you turn to God in those moments where you're struggling. Imagine not being able to do that. I can't even fathom it. It's because of Christ. Jesus is very clear throughout the scripture. There is no other way to the Father but through me. There are not many roads to God. There is one. His name is Jesus. In fact, we read in Acts 4.12, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The name of Jesus. Is that good news this morning, church? That's why every time we pray, we say in the name of Jesus. Because he is the one who made the way. We forget that as Christians sometimes. We get too used to it. We don't pause and dwell on that enough. There's no other name than the name of Jesus. And so what should be the natural response to this truth? It should be worship. It should be joy and peace, and it should be worship of our God in heaven. Like you would grab somebody and, and hug them so tight when you're drowning and they saved you, the same way we, we, we hug tight and hold closely our Father in heaven because he saved us. But not just in this life, but for all of eternity. Revelation in chapter 8, and verse 8 of chapter 5, We get this curious verse, and there's a couple ways of worship I want to highlight here that we see. It says, 
that these 24 elders fell down before the lamb and they were each holding a harp, right? This is probably where we get this idea that in heaven we're going to sit on clouds and hold harps. But actually the harps back then, I should have put a picture, they were really much smaller. They're like much more portable. Like they're only like this big, right? They're not the whole that we have today. But it's an idea of worship and praising him because harps in those times were, were, were uh, instruments of joy. I'm sure you ain't going to have to hold a harp if you don't want to. I'm sure Steve will be up there with an electric guitar, towing his amp around, right, with behind him, right, and his board so he gets the right key. Probably don't need that. You'll probably make it perfect sounds in heaven. You probably won't even need that. Won't even need the amp, right? Spencer will be there with his drum set. Good luck carrying that around, you know? The point is there's active worship. And here's this cool thing. It says that they were each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. That's a beautiful picture. Now, people in ancient times, they did not bathe like we bathe today. They did not bathe very often. In fact, you know, you know like, we look at our toddlers who, like, never bathe. They bathed even less than that. Just as wasn't always access to water or many reasons. So what did they do? They burned incense. So things would smell good, right? And so you know what this, this tells us? Our prayers are pleasing to God. In the same way, we are, we're dirty in our sin, right? Our sin stinks. Our sin smells Sometimes, some of us, we never go to God in prayer because we think we smell so bad. We're so dirty that we can't come to him. So we don't come to him. But Revelation tells us that even among our sin and our, and our smell and our dirt of our, 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 our lives and our selfishness, that our prayers are like sweet-smelling incense to God. Have you ever thought about your prayers like that to God? Have you? Because when I talk to people about their praying, they tell me how they don't know how to pray or they don't pray enough. They tell me all the ways that their prayers are no good. When I first became to Jesus, I used to feel the same way as well. But Revelation tells us that our prayers are like sweet-smelling incense. And know that there are, notice there are like no qualifiers. If you pray like the right way or long enough, or you use the special words, or you're on your knees, or you're like all the things that we think we have to do or to, to, to be a perfect prayer, it just says your prayers. That means the eloquent prayer that sounds so good and the prayer where we're just like, God, help me, help me. It's like a sweet-smelling incense to the Lord. What a beautiful image of our prayer life. That's what your prayers are. A sweet smelling incense to God. I want that to sink into you. Because it says this is true of all the saints. Now listen, some of you grew up learning that saints were a special type of like elite Christian, right? Like the special forces of Christianity. They were the awesome, like the varsity Christians, like the leather jacket, like everybody walk through and you're like, oh, right? 
And then, in fact, you were taught that you have to actually, if you pray to them, they'll help get your prayers answered. Because this, and this is one of the proof texts for these, because they carry your prayers to God. I don't think they do the, you know, I don't think they hop or anything. I just <laughs> felt like in the moment the right thing to do, right? Now, first of all, we, as we talked about weeks ago, getting our prayers answered by God is not our goal, should not be our goal. Because outside of what Scripture tells us God wants for us, we have very little understanding of what is best for us in any given moment. Very little understanding. We feel like what's best, but we know that our feelings lie to us. So that's not the goal. Okay? But let me, let me get back. That was a side point. Let me get back to this. I want you to read this. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lords and ours. This is one of many verses that speak to the fact that every Christian who has ever lived or died is considered a saint. You hear me, St. Mark? Yeah, yeah. Someone was like, well, was that blasphemy? right? We are all saints. Now, this doesn't mean we're elite or special. We're all fallen. We're all broken. What it means by saint means that you have been set apart by God, that you came to a point one day where you understand the full revelation of Jesus, and you said, Jesus, I'm putting my faith in you as Jesus, as Lord and as Savior. I'm going to follow you. You are it. I understand, and I believe. And God takes you, boom, out of the world of sin, destined for hell and destruction, and says, you are now part of my family. That's what it means to be a saint, So as a saint, your prayers go directly to God. This is good news. It means you don't need anybody else to help you talk to God. You don't need anybody else to help God hear your prayers. You don't need anybody else to go and vouch for you that your prayers are worthy of answering. All you got to do is say, dear God, dot, dot, dot. He has made us a kingdom of priests, just like we read. God loves when we pray to him. It is like a sweet aroma. And so like as we've been studying in our men's study and our women's study, and as we preach that series, man, it is my prayer this year that we would lift up more prayer in our lives than we ever have before. Amen, church. Now, the other aspect I want to touch on is that they were singing. It says they sang a new song. See, it's good to sing new songs. It's good to learn new music, right? You're like, no, bring us all back hymns. No, I'm kidding, kidding. If you've ever been in church long enough, you know the, this, the music wars uh, that have gone on since the beginning of time. It says they sang a new song. It means they were singing. Remember, one of the purposes of understanding Revelation is it changes how we should live now and inspire us. And so... One of the ways that we worship through God, and one of those ways that I want you to be reminded and inspired is, is singing. All throughout Scripture, one of, the, one of the greatest acts of worship you see is when people sing. They open up their mouths and they let sound come out in praise to God. Ephesians 5, it tells us to address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. You know what this tells us? That if your faith is in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if that's you today, you should be a person who sings. 
person who sings. Now, I understand how weird it can be to sing out. Nowhere today, outside of going to a concert or your school play, do people just gather to sing other than the church. Okay, and, and like men especially struggle this more than, more than women, okay? Because when we sing, we become vulnerable because we're taking our voice and we're putting it out there. And being vulnerable, some of us were wrongly taught, is not masculine. Singing is not masculine, you know? Hey, Bob, what are you doing tonight? We're getting together with some of the guys. We're going to go uh, build a campfire and sing some songs. Let's do it. Right? When guys go out together, they go axe throwing, they go shooting, they don't go singing, right? Singing's not considered masculine. But as Pastor Matt Chandler once said so well, if you don't think singing is something a man does, it is a clear indicator that you don't read your Bible. Spend time with King David. We talked about earlier. Dude played a harp, right? I mean, it wasn't a big harp like today, but it's still, I mean, if you see one, Google it. Not right now. It is not manly looking, right? And he wrote songs. They weren't manly songs. They weren't like Eye of the Tiger. They're like creating me a clean heart. And this is also the guy who killed lions, killed bears, and he killed a giant named Goliath. Man, singing to God is as manly as it gets. And fathers, we do a disservice to our sons, especially when we do not show them the example of singing before God. When we do not show them how manly it is to sing to our Father in heaven. There is an intimacy, a vulnerability, and a connection with God that happens when we sing. When we sing, we feel things more passionately. Come on, do you remember when you were a teenager and you got that boy or girl that you like and you find some cheesy love song, you put it on, and you're just like, just the feelings are magnified and girls, you're writing their name, last name to your name and hearts, right? Huh? Remember that? Some of you guys probably did it too. You just won't admit it. Singing engages a part of us, something extra. I don't think this is random. I think it's because God designed us to sing. It's a part of the way we communicate and the way that we connect. It touches places of our hearts. But we only feel that connection to God when we're willing to be vulnerable and sing out. And when we start to do that, it's amazing how everyone can disappear and all we see before us is the Lord. Now, sometimes we come to church and we sing, not because of vulnerability, we just sing because we don't feel like it. Some of you came this morning. You were rushing out the door. Your significant other was late, like always. And you're yelling at them, even though you gave them an hour notice and a half an hour reminder, and now's not the time to remind them of it because I don't want to fight in the middle of our service, right? Or you, were, you stayed up way too late last night. You didn't prepare for church this morning. You stayed up till 4 a.m. doing whatever you wanted, and so you weren't prepared to be here. You don't feel like singing. 
And so what happens when we don't? We usually won't say. It is impossible in our lives to desire to do the right thing all the time. If we desired to do the right thing all the time, then we would do it all the time. Most of the time, we don't desire to do the right thing. Like, I know that I should exercise more than I do. I just hide it well because I'm tall. But the desire is not always there. Mostly never there, right? I know that I should pray more often, but sometimes I allow busyness to overwhelm me and the anxiety of the list I need to get done, and, and, and so I don't want to pray. Now, does that mean that when I do exercise or that I do pray after I convince myself to do so, that I'm not re- really exercising or praying? No, I am praying. I am exercising. Even though I don't feel like it in the moment, I'm still doing it. I mean, obviously, it'd be better to desire us to always do the right thing when we're doing it. But we, and oh, Christians, we need this to know this, we do not need to feel rightly to act rightly. I'm going to repeat it again. We do not need to feel rightly to act rightly. I don't even know if that's proper English, but you get the point. You don't need to feel like you want to do the right thing to do it. In fact, a lot of times in following the Lord, it's not until you do something that you start to feel the benefits of it. I do not waste the time thinking about whether you feel like singing or not. Let's not wait for our hearts to be in the right place for us to open up our mouths. Because sometimes it's when we open up our mouths that it kindles a fire. Like, man, this morning I'm standing here in the corner and I'm like, I'm like, I think the thermostat's broken in the hallway. I don't think it's working right. And so I'm thinking about that. And I'm thinking, okay, did I misspell in any of my slides? Because you all know I do that all the time because I don't do them to the last second. You know, is my sermon too long this morning? Like, and all these lists are going on, and I don't feel like singing in those moments. But when I choose to start singing, so I'm going to sing to God anyway. I don't care if I feel like it. My heart starts to engage and my mind starts to engage. But I have to choose to worship him. Now, some of you, you don't sing because when you sing, you feel like it is small animals being attacked out in a field, right? Right? And maybe it does. (laughs) I'm pretty sure at the 1045, there are a couple that are. I won't say that about the 9 to 1045. But listen, who are you singing to? The people around you or to God? That doesn't mean you belt it out like you just go over the top insane. But it means you don't hold back because you're not singing to them. You're singing to the Lord. There was a time in my voice, I, in my life, I would not sing out loud. I would stand there because my voice was not great. In fact, the university that I went to, I still may be the only person who ever had their private singing lesson money refunded to them because the teacher just gave up. <laughs> he said, I'm just going to give you your money back, Jeff. I just, I don't know what to do. And, and he did, which was nice of him because he didn't have to. But now I sing, maybe to the dismay of my family around me, but I sing. Has my voice got better? No, but my heart has become more mature in understanding I'm singing to God. 
Ron, uh, Ronald Allen, he wrote this book called Worship, Rediscovering the Miss, Missing Jewel of the Christian Life. He says this, when a non-singer becomes a Christian, he or she automatically becomes a singer. Automatically. Now, they may not be blessed with a finely tuned ear and well-modulated voice, so the sound may not be superb. It may be out of tune and off-key, but the God in heaven hears what no one else can, and that is a thankful heart praising their Savior. Singing, it's not a matter of if you have a voice. It's a matter of if you have a song. And if you have the same song that the elders in heaven have of a, of a lamb who was slain, who saved you from your sins, who has put you in a right relationship with God, who has given you hope when there is none, you have a song. And so my whole desire for the end of this message is that you would become a person of prayer, lifting that sweet incense to God, and that you would be a person who sings. That you'd sing in your church for the benefit of those around you, that for when the person who comes in who's trying to find hope in their life and they have none, and they see a group of people who are not ashamed but are willing to sing, and they're like, what drives them to sing? What's the joy that they have that you'll bring them hope? That you're singing your cars. This is why we create Spotify lists and playlists so you can be in your car and you can turn on worship music that you'll be humming to yourself, that you will become a person of song because worthy is the Lamb. May we give people a glimpse of heaven through our lives and the way that we pray and the way that we sing. Amen, church?